From Bloomberg Law, this is Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. As of Friday afternoon, jury selection in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin is almost complete. So far, 13 jurors have been seated with one more to go. Earlier in the week, Judge Cahill said he won't delay or move the trial over concerns that a record $27 million settlement for Floyd's family may have tainted the jury pool. However, Cahill said he would allow limited evidence from a prior arrest of George Floyd on May 6, 2019, in which Floyd was suspected of concealing drugs by eating them. But as to the point of cause of death and medical condition, May 6th is relevant. There is a modus operandi to conceal drugs in part by ingesting them, but also doing so in a very stressful circumstance. That is, being pulled out of a car at gunpoint and handcuffed. In the aftermath of Floyd's death, citizens across the country took to the streets to demand police reform and increased accountability. Now, almost a year later, dozens of cities and states have changed policies or enacted laws that restrict the use of violent force by police. Ayanna Alexander is the social justice reporter for Bloomberg Law and has been reporting on many of these changes. Ayanna, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So where have these efforts at police reform been located? Is it just big cities? We really started to see that take shape um, in the 2020 presidential election. For example, we had voters in over a dozen cities and counties, including Philadelphia, Columbus and L.A. County, voting to overhaul discriminatory policing practices. And since then, there have been over a third of states trying to come up with some form of police reform on their own. I think one of the biggest legislative efforts at police reform would be the George Full would be the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which was passed by the House of Representatives earlier this month, mostly along party lines. What would be some of the key aspects of that bill? So the legislation in its current form would do a number of things. For starters, it bans law enforcement from using chokeholds like the one that ended George Floyd's life, as well as the use of so-called no-knock warrants in drug cases, such as the one that was the result in the death of Breonna Taylor. The bill also includes a provision that addresses qualified immunity, which is a legal precedent that gives government officials, including police officers, broad protections against lawsuits. It would also create a national database of police misconduct and requires federal law enforcement officials to use dash and body cameras. Many Democrats on the Hill have touted the bill as one of the most ambitious and important efforts at police reform in a generation. But there are also others that say that the bill doesn't go far enough to address the root discriminatory practices that have led people of color to be more exposed to violence at the hands of law enforcement. So, Ayana, what are the prospects that in its current form, it makes it through the Senate? That's the tricky part. It's as is. Um, (laughs) We never really know what's going to happen. You know, the House and the Senate, they rarely pass bills as they are without amendments. So my sources are very concerned that there will be amendments put in that may actually kind of take it back from being a moderate bill to being pretty conservative. So just two weeks after George Floyd died, Minneapolis City Council members announced a plan to dismantle the city's police department and create a new public safety system. That would have effectively made Minneapolis the nation's largest experiment in replacing traditional policing with social services and public safety measures. 
As of today, however, that plan still hasn't happened, and now there appears to be a broader criticism against the defund the police movement. Tell me a little bit about that. What form is this pushback taking? What we've been hearing most is that it's mostly GOP-led states. This includes Arizona, Iowa, Texas, and they are punishing their cities for potentially defunding their police officers, their police departments, by withholding state funding. So whatever money the state would be giving to their city, they're basically saying, we will not do that anymore if you cut your police budgets. And my sources have been saying that this is crazy because the cities, the localities are the ones who are contributing more to their police budgets than the state actually is. So it kind of causes some confusion for residents and constituents because you don't really know who has control over the police budget at this point, because you have states saying one thing and then you have cities saying another. Ayana Alexander is the social justice reporter for Bloomberg Law. Ayana, thanks as always. Thank you for having me. Last January, Texas Governor Greg Abbott encouraged the state legislature to pass a law that would withhold tax revenue from any city that cuts its police department budget. The move was primarily a response to the Austin City Council, which voted unanimously last August to cut its police department budget by $150 million, almost one-third. And it seems like Austin uh, is one of the first Texas cities to uh, pick up the mantle of of what Minneapolis has done and Portland and Seattle and some other cities like that have done. There have been some reverberations. You know, the city of Dallas tried to pass it and then reversed it, things like that. So we just want to be very clear uh, that Texas isn't going to go down the pathway that some of these other states and cities have gone down. Uh, We're not going to defund the police and we're not going to devalue the role that they play in our society. In addition to Texas, a number of other states are also promoting bills that would do things like stiffen penalties for violent demonstrations or strip local officials of the authority to make decisions on policing. Here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I look at what goes on in Portland and they'll have people, they'll arrest them. These are all scraggly looking, you know, Antifa types. They get their mugshot taken and then they get released. And it's like a carousel, on and on it goes. Uh, That's not gonna happen here in Florida. Seemingly singing from the same hymnal, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds aimed to characterize the defund movement as being driven by anti-police activists. In cities like Minneapolis, Portland, and New York, they have. They've embraced the attacks on law enforcement, and now their violent crime rates are rising for the first time in generations. That's not going to happen in Iowa, not on my watch. But defenders of reform efforts say that many of the cuts being proposed are based on the idea that police officers are often called upon to respond to issues outside their core competence, such as homelessness or drug addiction, which could be better served by channeling funding to other community programs. Greg Kassar is a member of the Austin City Council. I think that the most important thing is for people to understand what it is we are really trying to achieve. You know, everybody can put their own name or headline or slogan on this, uh, and there's different activist groups that are going to have different slogans, different politicians that are going to have different slogans. But what I think is important for folks to really understand is what we really did. And what we really did was say we can't have over-policing and mass incarceration in our community, but if you look at our city's budget, it looks like we focus so much 
on just policing. And so what we did was take funding that would have gone to more police officers and put that towards more mental health first responders, put that towards family violence shelters. So for me, it really is about reimagining our public safety budget because some people are interested in reductions to policing, but some folks are interested in what that money is being reinvested into, about what it is we are creating anew. And so, of course, there's going to be um, a battle over the words and what you call things. But what I'm interested in is what kind of what kind of change can we make for community members that are struggling right now? Kassar said that the city council had been trying to rein in police spending for years, but it wasn't until last summer's protests that city residents finally demanded change. And he says the idea that Republican state legislators would want to meddle in the affairs of local elected officials is more than a bit rich, given the standard conservative orthodoxy about big government spending. These bills aren't based on ideas. They're not based on principles. I mean, just think about the very prospect where the governor is saying that if a police budget is reduced even by one dollar, that he wants to slash city budgets, which would therefore reduce police budgets even more. So it's, these bills aren't actually about solving a problem. They're not actually about helping Texans in any way. They're not based on principle. It's all based on politics. We have a governor who's increasingly becoming less and less popular because he has totally mishandled the COVID-19 pandemic. And instead of pivoting and starting to take care of the health of Texans, he's pivoting to let's beat up Austin because maybe that'll generate some news headlines on Fox News. But others maintain that having state officials interjecting themselves into local government decision-making just sets a bad precedent, especially if it involves creating incentives for maintaining expenditure levels that aren't based upon service needs, or otherwise hamper efforts to find efficiencies, save costs, and lower property taxes. We feel that it's really essential that local governments um, are able to determine how, how best to use their budget, um, especially when we're talking about improving public safety services in those communities. That's, that's you know, it's really place-based work. And, and we feel that the responsibility lands in the local communities. Robert Blaine is the director of the Institute for Youth Education and Families at the National League of Cities. He was also previously the chief administrative officer for the city of Jackson, Mississippi. It's, it's problematic in any way to take any kind of budgetary control away from cities. I, I cannot overstate that enough. You know, local elected officials know best how to run their cities, their communities. And the fact is that they answer directly to their reg- residents. So, you know, when you take away control over municipal budgets, what you're doing is you're really reducing the ability of the people of a community to hold their local elected officials accountable for their budgetary decisions. So, you know, ultimately, it's the responsibility of that local government to determine what type of programs are needed best for their communities. And, you know, when I was in Jackson, we always said that a budget is a moral document. And and that budget reflects the priorities um, of that community. And when you take away that local control, you're actually taking away the voice of that community. So I, I just think it's it's a terrible precedent. 
According to an investigative report from the Washington Post, every year nearly 1,000 people are killed due to deadly use of force from police. People of color experience this violence at a higher rate compared to their white counterparts. So Robert, to what degree do you feel that many of these reform efforts are dependent upon the current trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer who's accused of murdering George Floyd? If Chauvin is acquitted, do you think it sets reform efforts back? So I think that George Floyd's murder has created a a totally new conversation in our country. And I think that we're not going to go back to the conversations that we had before. You know, individual cases are a part of that narrative, but they don't define the narrative. And so what I'm more concerned about than the direct verdict in this case is where the national conversation is moving. And of course, you know, we want to make sure that there's equity in communities and that that every individual case is tried the way it's supposed to be. We, we want that to happen. But I think that there's a national conversation of what public safety needs to look like and how municipalities can begin to reimagine what public safety is in their community. And uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful that as we move forward, communities will create a, uh, a process of, of what, what we used to call radical engagement, right? To really make sure that every voice in the community is heard and represented and that the, the policies that are brought forward are representative of the entire community. Robert Blaine is the director of the Institute for Youth Education and Families at the National League of Cities. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. And that will do it for this week. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn and Ayana Alexander. Josh Block is the executive editor of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening.